like to address a subject today that Dr. Meredith has talked about for some time. He's been emphasizing we need to build an atmosphere of faith in the church of God. We need to create an environment where faith is strengthened and where faith can grow. Now, why has he been emphasizing that? Anybody know? Basically, because Jesus Christ has emphasized the same thing. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 18. You're probably familiar with the scripture, but let's look at it again. Luke chapter 18, verse 8, where Jesus was talking with his disciples. He says, I tell you, verse 8, that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? He's talking about projecting ahead to the end of the age. He said, when I come, will I find faith on earth? It's interesting if you look this up in a couple of different translations. Another translation says, will he find faith left on earth? Will there be anything left of faith in God? Will faith still exist? Will faith in God still exist when Christ returns? Another translation says, will he find men on earth who believe in him or who still believe in him? In other words, Jesus was perceptive. He's looking down through time, and he realized something was going to happen as we get close to the end of the age that would destroy the faith of many people. He was talking about a crisis of faith at the end of the age. Well, how did Jesus know that? Well, he was God, and God can predict the future. He knows what human beings are like, and he also knows the track record of the Israelites, where they've had a tendency over the centuries to forget God and turn away and go in a different direction. But these questions, you know, will Christ find faith on earth? Will people still believe that God exists at the end of the age? You know, 50 years ago, when I grew up in Ohio, these would have been strange questions. See, I grew up in the flyover zone, (laughs) the area between New York and Los Angeles, where this strange species of so-called Christians lived. You think about it. In the 50s, we had coins in our pocket that said, in God we trust. And we believed that. We still have those coins in our pocket on American money. We pledged allegiance, I think every morning maybe in our classrooms, to one nation under God. That's what we grew up with. The town I grew up in Ohio, nearly everyone went to church on Sunday because that's what everybody did. Growing up in school, I don't recall ever meeting anybody that did not believe in God. I don't recall ever talking to anybody or even hearing anybody say that God didn't exist. But we live in a different world today. You know, on Saturday night back in the 50s, television stations were not on 24 hours a day. They went offline where they just turned off. (laughs) And you saw a test pattern. That was all that was on the screen. 
But on Saturday night, just before the TV station went off, it said, tomorrow is Sunday. Go to the church of your choice. This is what happened 50, 60 years ago. In high school, I think about once a month, we had a week of devotions every morning over the PA system that went out to the whole high school. I know because I did some of those. And we read a scripture, had a little Bible story, and we ended with a prayer. That was in a high school 50 years ago. Again, this was the happy days, the good times in America, the 1950s. And then the 60s came along, and everything changed. You know, today we live in a very different world. Today it's illegal to pray in public in many cases. It's illegal to read your Bible or read a Bible in schools. There was a situation down in Texas recently where a seventh-grade teacher gave a little quiz to her students, and she said, does God exist? And they had three possible answers. Uh, It's a myth, it's an opinion, or it's a fact. And she graded the students wrong if they answered it's a fact. This is hard to contemplate, but it's happening today. You know, the result of what we're seeing today is a rise of unbelief. Many studies have shown this, that more and more people are choosing not to believe in anything. And this rise in unbelief, this crisis of unbelief here at the end of the age, is most pronounced in young people, the millennials. People have been born since 1980, and they estimate 25 to 35 percent of millennials are atheists, agnostics, or nuns. They don't have any religious preference, nor do they have any religious affiliation. This is the country that we're living in today. Maybe just define very quickly, an atheist is a person that does not believe in God. God doesn't exist. There's no purpose for human life. An agnostic is a person that says, well, I I don't know whether God exists. I don't know if there's any purpose of life. And I don't know if there's anything that's really right or really wrong. It's an agnostic. Whereas a nun, not N-U-N, but (laughs) N-O-N-E, person has no religious preference, don't necessarily disbelieve in God. It's just that religion is not important to them. Many nuns grew up in a church. They went to church for some time. They're still interested in God, but they're not interested in organized religion because they've been turned off on that. These are some of the trends in society, but I'd like to ask you, how have these trends affected you or members of your family? Do you believe in God? Now, you wouldn't be here, or you might be here if you don't believe in God because your parents want you to be here, or people would notice if you're not here, or you wouldn't have access to the food that we have after service. (laughs) But is there a real God? How do you know? 
Could you point to evidence that there is a real God? Is God important in your life? I mean, really important. Or you have been have you been affected by this idea? Well, religion is not really that important. I've got other more important things to do. Are you confident about what you believe? Do you know that God exists? Do you know the Bible's inspired? Can you prove that? Have you proven it to yourself? Can you deal with critics that challenge your beliefs? I came across some things on the Internet recently of some individuals who spent time at Ambassador College. And one young fellow got upset about something, and he began reading literature produced by atheists. And he became an atheist. He's got a website. I don't know how many people go there. But he said, I'm an atheist, and I'm proud of it. But here was a young man that spent time at Ambassador College. I came across another one on the Internet that was posted some ideas that one of his classmates had died. And now this is a person who apparently graduated from Ambassador College. He said, I really wish that God had given us a better instruction book than this many times translated Bible that we're told to believe is his instruction book for us. In other words, he just doesn't believe the book. He said, I wish we had better instruction, a better instruction book to let us know if there is or is not something beyond death. What do you think? The Bible indicates there is. There's going to be a resurrection. We're going to have an opportunity to become part of God's family. There's quite a bit in the book. I will never, ever attend a church again where the minister tries to convince me that he or she has all the answers in order to get into my pocketbook and support his or her lifestyle. He's turned off. He says, there is one person that... uh, was recommended to me that makes sense out of a lot of things, and his name is Dr. Bart Ehrman. He's a professor of theology at the University of North Carolina. He says he really understands the Bible. Now, this is a, apparently a graduate of Ambassador College that never got the big picture or got turned off about something. These people have been affected by the stuff that floats around in our society today. And I ask, what about you? Have you been impacted by the ideas that float around in our society today? The sermon title I want to use today is Building Faith in God. Building Faith in God. How do you do that? How do you build faith in God? And I want to look at this from two different directions. One is, why do we have the problem today? Why are more and more people doubting that God exists, doubting that the Bible is inspired, doubting that it's a purpose of life? Then I want to look at some of the solutions that God provides for dealing with this issue. And I'd like you to think about this from several different perspectives. You may have a personal issue. You may have some doubts or some concerns.
But we're going to be dealing as kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God with people who come out of this age, out of this society. And they're going to have doubts. They're going to have concerns. How do you help someone get over those doubts to understand that there is a real God? And all that evidence has been in front of us for several thousand years. But they've not seen it or heard it. I want to talk about some of those things today. First thing I want to talk about is why is faith in God declining in America? It's not just here. This is in the Western world, the Western so-called Christian world. How do you deal with this? You know, this rising unbelief didn't just happen. It didn't just happen yesterday. It didn't just happen 10 years ago. This has been building for a number of centuries, depending on which way you approach it. It could be two or three centuries, could be 20 centuries. It's been building for some time. Mr. Armstrong used to use the analogy of looking at this world's conditions and say that, you know, you can't understand it. It's like walking into a movie and watching the last five minutes. You don't really understand what's going on unless you rewind the movie. (laughs) Maybe 200, 300 years or maybe 2,000 years. Then it begins to make sense. There are reasons why we are experiencing what we are today. And we need to be able to understand it ourselves as well as explain it to other people. When you go back to about 500 A.D., the fall of the Roman Empire, the lights went out in Europe when the Roman Empire fell. Barbarian invasions came in. They destroyed libraries. They destroyed all kinds of things. And learning basically stopped and went backward around 500 A.D. And then came what is called the Dark Ages for about 1,000 years, till about 1,500 A.D., at which time economics were getting a little bit better. People were beginning to rediscover Greek and uh, Roman literature, beginning to translate the Bible, began to realize what's in the book is very different from what we're hearing the priests say. And things began to change, led to the Enlightenment, so-called, in which intellectuals began to replace Religion, criticize religion and replace it with reason. This is much more in Europe than in this country. But they began claiming that religion was nothing but a bunch of silly superstitions. What they're talking about basically was Catholic theology because the Catholic Church was dominating things about that time. Discoveries, and I would add theories of science, appeared to contradict the Bible. They began saying, you know, the Bible is just a bunch of fables and contradictions. It's not really accurate. You know, miracles never happen because they don't happen today. So the intellectuals were picking up these ideas, and they wanted to get rid of the influence that the Catholic Church had. Darwin's theory of evolution, late 1800s, 1850s, came out about that time. Now, Darwin came from a family that was free thinkers, So it's no big deal to speculate that God doesn't exist. He'd grown up kind of in that environment. 
He made a trip to the Galapagos Islands, looked around, and began to realize you can tell which island a turtle came from because their shells are different. And you notice you can tell which island a finch came from because their beaks are different. And he made an assumption. If this variation could take place on these islands given a million years, what could happen? The problem is it didn't happen. It doesn't happen. (laughs) But his theory and his speculation, that's where it came from. It was a way of getting around the fact that there is a God, there is a creator. So these things began happening in 16, 17, 1800s, began to undermine the Bible, undermine faith in God. Another aspect was the French Revolution. We don't talk much about the French Revolution in the United States. 1789. The French Revolution was not only against the prerogatives of the nobility, it was an attack on the Catholic Church that controlled pretty much everything in France. Churches were closed. Church property was taken over by the state. And there was an an emphasis or an effort uh, within France to de-Christianize France. In other words, get rid of religion. Get rid of religion. Basically, the Catholic Church is what they were talking about. And make a secular state. The same thing is happening in Britain today. The first article we have in the uh, News and Prophecy talks about a report that uh, the British judges and lords have just released saying we need to get rid of faith schools because they're divisive. Britain is no longer a Christian nation, so we shouldn't pretend to be. We should become more of a secular nation. Same thing is happening today. But this, this is the, these are some of the things that began happening in, in Western civilization that began to undermine the Bible, undermine a faith in God. And this was several hundred years ago. But these things have continued down through today. Just mention a couple of other people. A French writer by the name of Voltaire wrote a lot of anti-Catholic pamphlets. But he's influenced intellectuals in Europe as well as in America. Voltaire wrote things like this, Christianity is the most ridiculous, absurd, bloody religion to ever infect the world. We need to get rid of it. He said, the Bible was a book written by fools, commanded by imbeciles, taught by rogues, and kids have to memorize it by heart. I mean, this kind of stuff was being pumped out at that time. He influenced a British fellow that came over here, Thomas Paine. And Thomas Paine was a pain for a lot of people in colonial America because he was knocking religion. And I came across a book he wrote, The Age of Reason, not too long ago. And he makes some interesting statements because when you read about him, say he was a bad guy. He was running down religion. He said, I believe in God What I'm against is organized religion because, as he says, the Christian church sprang out of the tale of heathen mythology. It's filled with a lot of pagan ideas. We wouldn't disagree with him on that. Where did Christmas come from? Where did Easter come from? It came from pagan practices. 
But then he jumped in uh, on board with Voltaire, and he said, you know, the Bible is filled with errors, and uh, uh, miracles didn't happen. But he had part of it right, but he got some other things wrong. But these ideas have, have filtered down. Nietzsche, German philosopher in the 1800s, um, he said religion is repressive, and he grew up, and I think, in a Catholic uh, family where he felt repressed. And he said if we could eliminate religion and guilt, people would be happier. This is the rationale that these people have used. Karl Marx used the same analogy. He said if we can get rid of religion, people will be happier. That's why in communist Russia they got rid of churches, closed churches, because they were following Marxist theology. Um, one of the young men I just referred to, a graduate of Ambassador College, started reading Robert Ingersoll. We talked about him in the uh, Tomorrow's World magazine. He was a lawyer and an orator in the 1800s. And he just made wild statements about God and about the Bible. Like he said, if you follow the teachings of the Old Testament today, you would be arrested as a criminal. In other words, you stone somebody or do something like that. He said, if you follow the teachings of the New Testament today, you've got to be insane. In fact, somebody else made the statement, uh, insanity is whenever one person has a mental disease. When many people have a mental disease, it's called religion. This is the atmosphere. These are the things that have been promoted for the last several hundred years. I came across a book entitled The Chosen People, or About the Chosen People, written by um, a couple of journalists today. And they said that uh, the capacity of human beings to imagine the world supernaturally is astounding. In other words, that people could actually believe there is a God is astounding, these journalists were saying. They said, we view the idea of the chosen people as presumptuous, absurd, odd, crazy, but it's a powerful idea (laughs) for some reason. What I want to point out is this is the atmosphere that has been building for the last several hundred years in Europe and in America. And what we're seeing today, this rise in disbelief, We are reaping the seeds that have been sown by intellectuals, by academics, by liberal theologians for the last several hundred years. Again, these individuals making these statements that I just read are not communists in Russia or China. They're not Islamic scholars. They're not Buddhists. They're not Hindus. They're individuals that grew up in Western culture in so-called Western Christendom. And they're undermining the faith in God, a faith in the Bible, where the values that uh, came out of the Bible have influenced what Western, why Western civilization is so much different. A couple of scriptures just to note. Psalms 14, verse 1. So the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that does good. 
But God says a person who makes wild statements like this, that God doesn't exist, the Bible is full of errors, but God says the fool, because he doesn't understand the big picture, or they don't understand the big picture. Isaiah 3, verse 12, you can check that on your own, where Isaiah says, your leaders cause you to err. The opinion makers, the people that are leading society, influencing society, are leading you down the wrong path. They think they know better, but they're wrong. Revelation 12:9 talks about Satan has deceived the whole world. So the world that we're living in today obviously is not God's world, but you know, the world thinks it's pretty good. But the world doesn't realize that they have been sold a, a, poor, you know, a bad bill of goods. But how do you deal? How do we deal with? Let's do it this way. Why do we need to talk about God? Why do we need to talk about the Bible? Because this is part of the solution. Your teaching and preaching and talking about God is part of the solution to the crisis that we face today, a lack of faith in God, a lack of faith in the Bible. A couple of things to keep in mind. That truth can be lost in one generation. You think about it. If we don't educate our children, if our example is not good, they can get turned off. I was teaching down at Big Sandy before everything came apart in the mid-90s. And many of the kids that were there on campus are not around today because of what they saw going on down there. It was hypocrisy. There was one minister that stood up, gave a sermon, took a Plain Truth magazine, ripped it up, and stomped on it in front of this whole congregation, about a 1,000 people. So this is what I think of what we published. And this, this is devastating for people, especially for young people when they see something like this happen. And later he was preaching about people going to heaven. He should have known better. But I think he wanted to do things that were politically correct and send a certain message. But why is it important to talk about God? If we don't do that, then our kids grow up with, without knowing God. I remember going to, uh, when I was in graduate school, and this, this is ancient history, about 50 years ago. <laughs> it was in Mississippi, the Bible Belt of America. And it was the medical center there, and uh, they had several student unions. Uh, Methodists had one. The Baptists had one. I think some other churches had one. And the way they would get people to come to the Baptist student union or the Methodist student union, they would put out free sandwiches and some juice at lunchtime. (laughs) And they would attract a small group of people. And the only catch was people that came had to give a testimony. I came one day. I didn't give a testimony, but one of the guys that I was with did. It was interesting. I was just thinking about this this morning. He was giving his testimony, but what he said was, I don't have the faith that my parents have. And that was his testimony. I don't have the faith that my parents had. Why not? 
because they were having uh, hymn sings and a lot of stuff like that where everybody was involved. But there was something missing. There was something missing that had not been transmitted. You know, a couple of scriptures you can look up, and we'll read a couple too. In Genesis 18, verse 19, God saw that Abraham would command his children and his household to keep the way of God. Abraham became, was you might say, appointed to be the father of the faithful because he had a capacity. He conveyed the truth of God to his family and to his household. This is something that's our responsibility today. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, again, the setting here, Moses is addressing the children of Israel who saw their parents die in the wilderness after wandering for 40 years. So just before this second generation came into the promised land, Moses reviewed the covenant with them. Verse 1, Now, Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving to you. Don't add, don't take away, and do this basically because it's going to be good for you. Uh, he wanted them to be a light and example to the world, verse 6, 7, and 8. But in verse 9, it says, Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart, and teach them to your children and to your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God, uh, in Horeb, where they were given the laws of God, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, that they may teach their children. And this is the mission that God gave to the Israelites, teach your children about God. But God's not up there with a big fly swatter waiting to just get them as soon as they have a wrong thought. You know, he's a loving God, but he's a just God. He allows us to make decisions, and then he allows us to experience the results of those decisions. If they're good decisions, we are blessed. If we make bad decisions, we have to reap the consequences. So these were the instructions that God gave to Moses. And it's mentioned several times in the book of Deuteronomy. Parents, teach your children about God's way. You know, in Deuteronomy, we find these words, remember, take heed, don't forget, admonition after admonition that runs through the entire book. Deuteronomy 28. Again, Moses went over this with the Israelites. You don't need to turn there now, but jot it down in your notes. Go back and read it said, if you obey, you're going to be blessed. Things will go better for you. But if you turn away, if you forget, if you despise my laws, then there will be consequences. And the sooner we can learn that, the better our life is going to be. If we want things to work out good, do it God's way. The sooner we can learn that, the better off we'll be. But again, God had a perception. 
Turn to Deuteronomy 31. Again, Moses warned the Israelites just before they went into the promised land. Verse 16 and verse 29, verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land. where they will be going among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. So God knew what the tendencies of the Israelite nations were, and we're watching those tendencies work out today. Verse 29, I know that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. Because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. God foresaw what was going to happen. And the same thing is happening today. Maybe go home and read tonight 1 Corinthians chapter 10, about the first 11 verses, where Paul lists there a series of events from the Old Testament. And then in verse 11, He said, these things happen to them as examples for us upon whom the end of the ages have come. These Old Testament examples are there for us to learn from. How Israel turned from God, they went into captivity. As a nation today, we're turning away from God. Now, a lot of people still believe in God. I think in the United States, about 85% of people claim to believe in God. But when it comes to uh, what about the Sabbath? Well, that's different. We don't have to keep that anymore. That's been done away with. So we have all kind of rationale for doing away with the laws of God. What we find in Deuteronomy are a series of mild admonitions. <laughs> Remember, don't forget, uh, you know, be careful. But once we get to the prophets, major and minor, things become very different. The mild admonitions become strong warnings and condemnations because they were basically preaching to and warning nations that were on a downward skid. Things were happening and said, this is what's going to happen. I'd encourage you to read some of the scriptures. Read the whole chapter of Isaiah chapter 1 where he says you're a sinful nation you've forsaken God and then God says through Isaiah I'm going to hide my eyes from you and I will not hear you in other words you're going to pray but he said I'm not going to listen you might think what kind of God is that it's the father that told his kids 1500 times (laughs) don't do that and finally you say You're going to do it, you'll have to learn the hard way. Jeremiah says this several times. Don't pray for them because I'm not going to listen. They're going to have to learn the hard way. See, God is a just God. There's sometimes that the only way we learn is the hard way. Turn to Isaiah 28. And we're looking basically at uh, warnings in the Bible that are there for our admonition today. And this is why it's necessary to talk about God, what he is like. Many people think 
you know, I became a quote-unquote Christian, and God is just like somebody in my back pocket. We just we talk, and we have a good relationship and everything like that. Now, God has principles. He's got laws. He has rewards that he wants to give out. But we've got to qualify for those rewards. Isaiah 28 <clears throat> Drop down to verse 7. It's just talking about verse 1. It says, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. This was uh, up in Samaria. Whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. This is America today, Britain today. Britain once ruled the world, basically, and now they're almost bankrupt. America's power is fading today, just as ancient Israel did. But it faded for reasons. Down in verse 7, the latter part of that verse, it says, They err in in vision and they stumble in judgment. They've got a wrong perspective. They're making wrong decisions. You know, the Israelite nations today have become intoxicated with erroneous and misguided ideas. Oh, we believe in evolution. Science is more trustworthy than the Bible. There is no God. God's a myth. These are the erroneous ideas that are being promoted today. Jeremiah 2, I encourage you to read that. It's a very powerful indictment of Israel and Judah. It says, has any nation changed their gods, but you guys have? You know, people in India, people in China, have been worshiping Buddha for several thousand years. America was founded on the Bible, biblical values, but we're throwing those away today. We don't believe they are relevant anymore. Nations that have been blessed incredibly by God don't pay God any attention today. But the Buddhists and the Hindus keep chugging along with their big idols different places. And Mr. Tyler and I were in, I believe it was uh, Indonesia, a year or two ago, a couple years ago, we walked up to some caves where they had these big statues of Hindu gods with monkey heads and elephant heads and whatever. And people were walking up these steps and putting little gifts by these, by these idols. They've been doing that for hundreds and thousands of years. And yet America is changing what we used to believe was right. I mentioned what growing up in Ohio was like. In the happy days, in the 50s, where everybody went to church. I remember the first day I caught a a softball in my bare hand and I said something. I took God's name in vain. And then I stopped and looked around and I thought the earth was going to open up where lightning was going to come out of the sky because I believed that I'd done something wrong because that's how I'd been educated. Now we play golf, throw clubs all around and use God's name in vain and whatever. Don't worry about things like that. It's a different world we're living in today. Jeremiah 23 mentioned this in the uh, concluding comments, but it's a powerful verse. Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah is talking about false shepherds, false leaders, And this could be religious leaders as well as uh, academic leaders. But these false shepherds are doing things. Verse 13, I've seen the folly of the prophets. 
these leaders of Samaria, the capital of uh, the northern ten tribes. They prophesied by Baal, and they caused my people Israel to err. They took them down the wrong track. Verse 25, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying I have dreamed a dream. This is my theory. This is what I think. Verse 27, who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, by their theories. Trying to get people to forget God. And this is what's happening today. Verse 32, now this is God speaking. Through Jeremiah, behold, I'm against those who prophesy false dreams, who promote false ideas, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. You know, we've got people today like this uh, <clears throat> guy in England, um, Richard Dawkins. He's a very uh, militaristic atheist. He talks about your God, that monster in the Old Testament, that terrible person. This uh, fellow that I just mentioned earlier, the lawyer here in the United States, uh, Robert, what was his name? Anyways, he was saying the same thing. These ideas haven't changed. Voltaire was saying some of the same things. These ideas have continued for the last several hundred years, And psychologists know if you keep saying the same thing over and over and over again, the people begin to believe it. And this is Satan's world pumping out these ideas. Jeremiah 30, we use this a lot. I was talking about a time of Jacob's trouble is coming. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Time of Jacob's trouble is going to be in deep trouble towards the end of the age. Um, in verse 12, talking to the Israelites, it says, Your affliction is incurable and your wound is severe. Again, you look this up in some other translations. One said that your wound is beyond healing. It's beyond healing. You're not going to solve the problems by yourself. It's going to take a strong hand from somewhere. That comes in to straighten out the situation. This is God talking. Let's look at one or two other scriptures in Hosea chapter 4. And again, these are very strong condemnations that God was delivering to a nation that was about to go down the tubes. And it just blows my mind that there are ministers today. Some have links with the Church of God that don't want to talk about Bible prophecy, that don't want to talk about these strong condemnations because it might upset some people. But, you know, if you don't talk about these things when they begin to happen and people are shocked and people die, as Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33 say, that their blood will be on our shoulders if we don't deliver a powerful message. And it will upset some people. You know, Isaiah delivered a powerful message, and what happened? He was tied between two planks and cut in half because his message was not appreciated. But there are people today that don't want to say anything. Hosea chapter 4 is, is a list of things that God says he despises. These are the charges 
that he has against Israel. Verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There's no truth. And when people claim that there's no God, that the Bible is a bunch of fables, it's not true. That's an opinion, a wrong opinion. No truth, no mercy, no knowledge of God in the land, and talks about some other things. Verse 6, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, we have all kinds of knowledge today, secular knowledge, physical knowledge. But this is talking about spiritual knowledge. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But notice this, because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from being a priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of God, I also will forget your children. If you've not taught your children about God, that there are laws of God that if we obey, we're going to be blessed. If we disobey, there will be consequences. If they start doing things that nobody ever told them it was wrong, they will reap the consequences of the seeds that were sown by either parents or by teachers or by liberal preachers that didn't have the guts to say what they should have said. They just kind of go on. Because you've forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. Verse 9, it says, And shall be like people, like priests, so I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. Jeremiah says somewhat the same thing. He says, You're going to reap what you sow. And we have sown seeds over the last several hundred years that are beginning to come home. The chickens are coming home to roost today. And this is what we're seeing. This is why we're seeing this rise in unbelief today. Hosea chapter 8. You can read Hosea tonight. It's, It's only about 14 chapters long. It's not real long, but it's quite a wallop whenever you read all 14 chapters together. In chapter 8, again, talking to the Israelites, verse 4, they set up kings, but not by me. In other words, they chose their own leaders, not following the guidelines I had given. Verse 12, I have written to him, that is the Israelites, the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. Bible, that's strange. You believe that stuff? I think it's uh, Richard Dawkins in one of his books makes the statement, if you believe in God, you're stupid. You're stupid if you believe in God. These are the ideas that float around today. But God says, I've written him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. Verse 14, Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire upon his cities. And these are things we're probably going to see in the not-too-distant future. Some of these, uh, these Islamic terrorists set off some sort of a bomb in New York City. We're going to see a mess. These are prophecies about what is going to happen because our nations have turned away from God and don't believe that God exists anymore. And we promote these ideas came across a book written by Peter Hitchens. He was an English journalist and author. had a brother, Christopher Hitchens, who was a very outspoken uh, atheist. 
So was Peter Hitchens when he was younger. But he turned around, started attending church again, and he started writing books. His brother died of cancer not too long ago. It's very interesting. The book's entitled The Rage Against God. He's talking about what is happening in our society today where people just, they get angry when they hear the word God or the word Jesus Christ. He left the Church of England. He grew up in the Church of England, left in his teenage years, became an atheist and a socialist. He really got involved promoting socialism, communism, that type of thing, atheism. But then he became disillusioned with all of that, and he left. And he came back to the Church of England. But he makes some interesting statements. He says, talking about his wilder years, he says, We were sure our civilization had outgrown the nursery myths of God. We knew it was all wrong, and we had outgrown it. We believed that science explained everything. He says, We disliked authority. We didn't want anybody else telling us what to do. Uh, He said, we became arrogant. In other words, we have all the answers. We believed the state could replace God. This is Marxist theory. You don't need God. You have the state. But he came to see that the fruit of that was bad, and he came back, began attending church uh, with the Anglican church, He says, our approach at that time led to the demise of religion and the demise of the family, moral decay, and all the evils that we see around us. That's quite a turnaround. He says, mainstream Christianity has been systematically undermined by social liberals and cultural Marxists who believe there is no God, who believe there are no absolutes, no right and wrong, who believe that there's no purpose for human life. He says what we really need to be doing is promoting biblical Christian values. That's quite a turnaround from a person that left and got involved with a bunch of other things. You know, building on what we read in Deuteronomy of teaching our children, we've got to talk about God. We've got to talk about how God operates, how he works, what he expects what the rewards are of obeying God and what the consequences will be if we turn away from God. Because we have generations growing up that have never heard these things. They're going to get in trouble. They're going to experience some really difficult times in their lives because nobody told them. In some cases, we're not allowed to say these things if you're teaching in public schools. Okay, to to conclude the sermon, I want to focus on some more positive things. How do you build faith in God in an age of declining faith? How do you do it? How do you swim upstream? How do you motivate people to swim upstream? Or at least dig your feet into the, the bottom of the stream and stand there against the current. You ever tried to do that? I remember one time I was riding a rubber raft off the uh, beach in New Jersey. And I got out just a little bit over what I could manage. I was 10, 11 maybe at that time, maybe a little bit younger. And uh, no, I wasn't on a raft. I was wading out there. I was riding the waves. Waves come in, you jump up, and 
It carries you into shore a little bit. I was depending on being carried into the shore. <laughs> but somehow I wasn't carried far enough, and I came down, and I realized the undertow is pulling me out. And I'm digging my big toes <laughs> into the bottom of the sand, but I'm being pulled backwards. And I tried this two or three times, and I saw this guy looking at me, watching me, because I, I kept going further and further backwards. And all I could do was dig my toes in and keep my nose above the water. He said, Sonny, are you in trouble? I said, no. <laughs> he watched a little bit longer. <laughs> he said, are you in trouble? I said, no, 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 I'm fine. He finally came over and grabbed my arm. He said, I think you're in trouble. Because <laughs> I wasn't able to manage the undertow. It was stronger than I was. And I wasn't big enough. So how do you manage this stuff that comes at us day in and day out? It's possible I want to cover a couple of ways and several ways that we can do this. Number one, we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We're told that in the Bible. Second Peter 3 warns us that scoffers will come in the last days. People who scoff, who make fun of the Bible, who make fun of religious belief. He said, this is what's going to happen at the end of the age. And we're seeing that happen today. As I said, when I grew up in Ohio, everybody went to church. I never heard anybody say God doesn't exist. But our kids and you will hear these things day in and day out, people saying things. And the louder they say things, the more ridiculous they are, the more press coverage this gets. I think as Richard Dawkins and others have said, that faith is belief without evidence. Faith is belief without evidence. You just believe. You don't have any evidence for what you believe. It's irrational, but you believe it. That's okay because you're irrational. (laughs) This is the way the thinking goes. And yet we're going to see faith is based on evidence, should be based on evidence. Jesus made a statement in Matthew 11, 25. You can look about this later. He says, I thank you, God, because you revealed these things to babes. You've revealed your truth to people who are, you might say, simple-minded. They believe what's in the book. And not blindly. We should be able to look up the proof and other things. But God's not calling the wise or the mighty. And we read this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 28. God has not called the wise nor the mighty. He's called the weak and the foolish, which is humbling to us. You look around, it's not the Voltaire's that were called. It's not the Richard Dawkinses of the world that are called. God is calling people that are willing to look into the book and actually follow what is written there. Because we believe what Moses said to the Israelites. If you obey, you're going to be blessed. Your life is going to be better. And if you disobey, you want to do it the other way, you can do it. But there will be consequences. There will be consequences that we don't have to go through if we're willing to listen. 1 Peter 5.8 talks about Satan as a roaring lion walking around seeking whom he may devour. If he sees that you've got doubts and concerns, he will blow a little bit in your ear. 
you should feel justified. Anybody with any intelligence will have the same doubts. You don't want to be a sucker and believe some of this stuff that you're hearing. You know, you're, 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 you're being, you're, your mind is being manipulated. You don't want to believe that stuff. Satan operates that way. We need to be aware of that. But let's look at ways we can build faith. Number one, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Hebrews 11, 1 defines faith, and it's a very different definition than what uh, these modern critics say. They say that faith is belief without evidence. Hebrews 11.1 1 says something very different. It says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The substance is like this podium up here. There's something there. It's not just air. There's something there. Faith is substance. It's substantial. And it's the evidence of things that you don't see yet. But there should be evidence that would keep you on track as you're looking for something. We don't see the kingdom of God yet. But we read about it. We learn about it. Other things have happened that give us a reason to have faith. Faith is based on evidence. And we need to find that evidence, collect it, hang on to it, and review it from time to time so that you don't forget it. You know, Moses told the Israelites, don't forget what your eyes have seen. We read in, I think it's in Second Peter chapter 1, where Peter says, we are eyewitnesses to the things that we've told you. We saw these things happen. We were eyewitnesses to these things. And I would encourage you, make a file, keep things together, review it from time to time of the evidence that points to the fact that the Bible is inspired, that God exists, that prophecies are coming true. Don't forget those things. We'll talk about those things too a little bit today. But faith is based on evidence, on substance. Again, it's a gift of God, which is another scripture. But God gives us this capacity to see and understand what the truth is, and we have to hang on to it. We have to hang on to it. In 1 Thessalonians 5.21, it says, Prove all things and hold fast to those things that are right and true. Prove it, examine it, find out what the evidence is, hang on to that. You know, when I first learned about the truth, I think I've mentioned this before, that I didn't know where the church was meeting. I was in Jackson, Mississippi. I couldn't find an address. I couldn't get the name of the minister for a while, so I went to the library every Sabbath for about a month. Spent about eight hours there looking up this, looking up that, finding out this, finding out that. Finally got the minister's name. Called him up and said, uh, I'd like to keep the Sabbath. I want to come to church. He said, do you keep the Sabbath? I said, yes. What do you do on the Sabbath? I go to the library every day. He said, why don't you walk across the street to the YWCA? We meet upstairs in the second floor. <laughs> but I was trying to prove what I was hearing. And it was amazing what I was finding out. Because it's there. The information is there. 
And again, if you've not done this for yourself to prove these things, you're on ice. They could melt at some point in time. You need to take the time to do this. So that's number one. Faith is based on evidence. There's other aspects to it, but evidence is a big part of it. It should be. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have said, prove all things. Examine everything. Don't just buy into it. When I heard Mr. Armstrong and others saying these things when I was coming into the church, I never heard a Protestant minister say that. Don't believe me. Look it up in the book. Go to the library. Look it up there. You'll find it. They usually say, just trust us and, <laughs> and trust God and everything will be fine. No, God says, prove it. Number two, Jude chapter, or Jude, Jude verse three. Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. That earnestly contend can be translated fight, <laughs> defend. Don't be a wimp. You should be able to stand up and give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Why do you believe what you do? Why do you come to church on Saturday? Everybody goes on Sunday. And you've got to be different. Why? Find the reasons. Why would you attend church on the Sabbath unless you looked into the Bible Luke 4.16, that Jesus kept the Sabbath as his custom was. Acts 17, verses 1 and 2, Paul kept the Sabbath as his custom was. Well, it's only his custom. He didn't have to. Just to say, it's just custom. No. <laughs> he was following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. That's why he kept the Sabbath. That's why he kept the holy days. The early church did those things. Some people say there's no evidence outside the Bible that Jesus ever existed. True or false? False. (laughs) There is evidence outside the Bible that Jesus Christ existed. Tacitus talks about it. Some of the other Roman writers talked about it. There's evidence there. He did exist. Was Jesus really resurrected? How do we know? Where would you turn in the Bible? How about 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4 or 5 verses, where he was seen by this apostle, then that apostle, then four or 500 people, and they were still alive whenever Paul was writing the book of 1 Corinthians. The evidence is there, yet people don't want to accept the evidence. There were witnesses. came across something recently that... Uh, <clears throat> Tiberius Caesar actually wrote an edict and inscribed it on marble. He says, it is my decision about graves and tombs. This was probably written after the resurrection. Whoever has made them, that is, graves and tombs, for religious observances of parents or children, these should remain undisturbed forever. In other words, if somebody's been buried in a tomb, it should remain undisturbed forever. For if anyone legally charges that another person has destroyed or has in any manner extracted those who have been buried or with wicked intent has moved those who have been buried to other places, committing a crime against them 
or who has moved sepulcher ceiling stones. Who's this talking about? Talk about the Jews. Against such a person, I order that a judicial tribunal be created, just as in human religious observances concerning gods. Uh, even more so will be at um, obligatory to treat with honor those who have been entombed. You are absolutely not to allow anyone to move those entombed for any cause. But if someone does, I wish the violated to suffer capital punishment, put him to death, and be designated as a tomb breaker. These weren't people breaking into tombs to get jewelry. <laughs> they were breaking into tombs to take bodies out of. And you read in Matthew 27, verse 52, that the earthquake that happened when Christ died, tombs were opened and people walked into Jerusalem. Hi, Grandma. <laughs> Hi, Aunt Sue. <gasps> Where'd you come from? Out of the grave. Where do you think? Why would a Roman uh, <clears throat> official make a decree like this? And let it was after people came out of a tomb. Now they claimed that the disciples stole Christ's body. Here you've got some hard evidence on marble. <laughs> that the Roman officials were concerned about what was happening in and around Jerusalem about the time of Christ. And Christ did come out of a grave. That's what the book tells us. But brethren, you can earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. The evidence is there. What did the early church teach? And we've got booklets to talk about that. You can read it for yourself and then draw your own conclusions. Another way to build faith is to prove that the Bible is the inspired word of God. To prove it for yourself. You know, we've got a booklet on that, the Bible fact or fiction. When I put that together, all I did was gather together a lot of information that's already out there. But I'd suggest read it, think about it, and ask yourself, do I believe it? Are you convinced that it's true? You know, the Bible tells us in Romans 3, I think it's verse 1 and 2, that the Jews preserved the scriptures. And this is one of the questions that comes up a lot whenever new people come into the church. Well, how do we know we have, have the complete Bible? How, how do we know? You know, it's been copied so many times, as that one ambassador graduate said, this many times copied book, how can we trust it? Apparently he wasn't listening whenever it was covered in class. You know, the Jews preserved it for about a thousand years. That's why you can take the Dead Sea Scrolls, the scroll of Isaiah. It was probably written two, three hundred years B.C. Um, the, the scroll may date from that time, two, three hundred years B.C. But the Dead Sea Scrolls that date from about 200 B.C., the book of Isaiah is almost word for word the same as what we read in the, in the scriptures. So these, these books have been preserved. They've been preserved. The, the Jews did it. Archaeology confirms the Bible. You know, for years they said uh, the Hittites probably never existed. They're just stuff in the Bible until they dug up some, a library in Turkey and they found reference to the Hittites, thousands of, of references, and they had to change their tune. 
Many scholars said David never existed. There's no evidence outside the Bible until they found (laughs) a stone that said the house of David on it, which all of a sudden they had to change. Goliath, that's just a story. They found a potsherd with the name Goliath on it. (laughs) Probably not the Goliath, but what it shows was they found it near Gath, dates to about 900 B.C., which means the name Goliath was used at that time. Uh, Another thing, maybe jot this down and, you know, check it up. Romans 16, verse 23, Paul talks about a fellow by the name of Erastus, E-R-A-S-T-U-S, who was a treasurer uh, or a city official in uh, Corinth. And they found a stone that was in a pavement that said this road was... Uh, paid for by Erastus. Sometimes we take these names at the end of a book, like Romans, well, it's just not that important. But when you dig up a stone with the guy's name on it, uh, and he was an assistant to Paul, helped Paul out, these are the type of things, brethren, that are hard evidence that the Bible is trustworthy. You know, John says in 1717, Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. It's accurate. And these people that mock the Bible and say it's a bunch of stories don't understand what they're talking about. You know, we have some Living University classes, archaeology of the Old Testament, archaeology of the New Testament, covers some of these things. And it's evidence that you can build your faith on. The Bible's not a collection of myths and legends. It's a collection of of accurate information, proving that God exists. We've got a booklet on that also. But prove it for yourself. Take the time to do that. When I was first coming into the church, the minister told me, he said, you need to back your mind into a corner and don't let it out. And he says, I give. (laughs) I give. I'm convinced. The evidence is there. Don't just say, well, you know, I have this warm feeling in my heart, and I just know this is right. Get the evidence. Get the facts. Is there design in the universe, or is there an appearance of design? This is the argument. Is there design, or is there appearance of design? This sounds so sophisticated. What about the origin of life? You know, I used to teach biology, In the earlier textbooks, they talked about the law of biogenesis, that life only comes from pre-existing life. In the 1950s, they were doing some experiments trying to create life. And they put some chemicals in a test tube, passed an electric uh, um, circuit through it, and they got some amino acids. And they thought, we're on the verge of creating life. The guy who did some of those experiments, Miller, I think his name was, said about 20 years later, it was not as easy to create life as we thought it was going to be (laughs) because they still haven't done it. They still haven't done it. The biology textbooks talked about uh, the fixity of the species, that species don't change, but evolutionists believe that they can. So they don't talk about the fixity of the species anymore. You go to Genesis chapter 1, God created these animals to reproduce how? Kind after kind. You you can produce little chihuahuas, and you can produce Great Danes, 
You can produce these little miniature horses, and you can produce Clydesdales, but they're still horses, and they're still um, <clears throat> whatever else I was talking about. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but see, we don't want to talk about a fixity of a species, especially if we want to believe if we want to believe in evolution. So you change the vocabulary. Like, we don't want to talk about homosexuals, we want to talk about gays, because that, that sounds better somehow. The same thing. Predictions of the future, Bible prophecy, another big thing for proving that God exists. The Bible is filled with thousands of prophecies, several thousand prophecies. It's become very specific. You might want to read and just review Isaiah 46, verses 5 through 7, where it says God alone can predict the future and bring it to pass. Only God can predict the future and bring it to pass. God has predicted the future of the Israelite nations. talks about Ephraim and Manasseh, the children of Joseph, will become a nation and a company of nations. Who else has done that? It happened. It's come true. But you read in Deuteronomy 28, it says, you turn away from me and you will be besieged in your gates. This is all, you're going to lose them. This is happening today. How could somebody writing, searching for God, writing almost 3,000 years ago, make statements like that that are coming true today? If you want some interesting reading, there's a book entitled The Weather Factor. It talks about how, you know, we've got a booklet on that same title, you know, World Events and How the Weathers Influence Things, a couple different booklets. But this, this book is written by not a person in the church, but he's talking about how the weather has influenced the course of history, how the weather played a role in the defeat of the Spanish Armada because God was preserving England because it needed to be preserved for a reason. God intervened in the American Revolution. How could 13 little colonies take on the most powerful nation in the world and succeed? You know, Washington knew the hope of America rested on God's intervention. And we've written about some of these things. The Battle of Long Island, one of the first battles of the Revolutionary War, they had about 10,000 British troops, and they had... Uh, uh, <clears throat> boats with a bunch of cannons. The boats could not get up the river because the wind was blowing in the wrong way. First day of the battle, the Americans got pulverized. Then it rained, stopped the battle. Then a fog came in. Washington says, we're out of here. <laughs> they got across to New Jersey. The people writing at that time said this was absolutely unnatural for this stuff to happen this time of year. The American uh, uh, troops got over to New Jersey. The sun came up. The fog disappeared. The British wake up. Okay, let's go get them. Where'd they go? <laughs> and this happened over and over and over. Same thing happened in World War II. The invasions in North Africa, in Sicily, and also in Normandy were all preceded by bad weather, they get there ready for the land of troops. The, wet, the water smooths out, 
and they landed troops, in many cases to the surprise of the Germans. Eisenhower made a statement about eight years after Normandy. He basically said, when I look back on it, the decisions I made, he said, is proof to me that there is a God because it couldn't have happened. He understood. But academics and theologians today don't seem to understand. Brethren, we've been encouraged to build an atmosphere of faith Jesus Christ said, when I come back, will I find faith left on the earth? I would encourage you, take some time. The evidence is there that there is a God. The evidence is there that this book is inspired. The prophecies are there. They've come true. They're coming true today. Hang on to that evidence. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. With meekness and fear. Not going to lie. I know all about it. No. I believe what I do because of evidence. I believe because I do because I've seen the facts. And I'd be glad to share them with you. Part of our job is going to be to share with the world the evidence that God exists. The evidence that this book is inspired. The evidence that there is a purpose in life. It's an exciting mission, but I would encourage you, find the evidence. Hang on to the evidence. Make that part of your foundation that you can build your faith upon so that we can grow and that we can be effective instruments in God's hands. So let's work together to build an atmosphere of faith within the living church of God.